Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. I am your host, Weston Williams, and uh, joined this week by creative consultant Oliver Camacho with co-hosts Tobias Wright and Matt Cummings. We are live on WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Call us on air and have your opera voice heard. What's your hot take on what we're talking about? Again, that opera that number is 847-866-9687. All right, tonight it's a chalk talk double header. Our team responds to a recent article in the New Yorker magazine on African American countertenor John Holiday. Then we look at why one of Britain's most distinguished singers has accused fellow devotees of Richard Wagner of repeated attempts to undermine her position and, quote, rewrite history. But first, we crunch the numbers on English National Opera's 2018 season on the Dodson scale, find out how the ENO stacks up against its European rivals, plus at 9.40 p.m., it's a two-minute drill, everything you need to know from the past week in opera land and our hot takes on those stories. And without further ado, Oliver Camacho, how you doing? Weston, what did you do to George? I, 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 I uh, murdered did you, him. And did you he, all about uh, Eve him? <laughs> I was very hungry. It's been a long <laughs> He's week. Little, he, yeah, is a little, uh, he doesn't have a lot of meat. It's not, be like a, a meat. It's those wild game, like... <laughs> Like they don't—they're very muscular, you know. Yeah, Matt, lots of hair. Matt Cummings, what's your take on this new cannibal story that we're dealing with here on the show? I, I was going to give you the benefit of the doubt and just say that George got a lot taller over the last week, but oh. I guess we're going darker. Uh, and yeah. Tobias Wright, how about you? I just want to know what you marinated him in. Oh uh, well, I, I was More thinking of kind rub, of like a, a dry rub. Yeah. yeah, definitely a dry rub kind of situation. You know, Oliver's really into dry rubs too. <laughs> I mean, when it's wet, oh god, you don't have enough friction. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna stop you right there because this is a family show. We're gonna move on. Uh, so, so, so uh, we need to get some sports talk out of the way. Does anyone know what sports are happening? Yes, right now? yes, yes. It's the greatest time of the year in that. There's NBA playoffs. We're about to enter the dog days of summer for baseball, which is glorious. And for some people somewhere, they enjoy ice hockey, and that's the Stanley Cup playoffs. <laughs> for, I don't know anything about hockey, though. I will for those it two people who watch hockey. Uh, I, I've never played hockey myself. I'm very confused by the concept. Coming from Alabama, you know, it's all just ice, and ice just doesn't make sense to me. Mm. Uh, I, I, whenever I try to stand anything other than iron-rich soil, I fall right over. This is a true story. It's it's a it's you have too high of a center of gravity, Weston. Are you from Alabama or from Wakanda? Oh, I am definitely not from Wakanda. <laughs> I am way too white for that. Uh, but uh, on, that's a that's a good segue into our uh, Dodson uh, scale here on Opera Box Score. That's coming up right now. Opera class, sports radio crass. This is Opera Box Score. Okay, so the Dodson scale is a scale we use. Uh, you can find it on operaboxscore.com to rate the originality and diversity in an opera uh, season. Uh, and we just uh, applied some of those uh, metrics to the English National Opera. So, uh, Matt... Yeah. You got some opinions on that? Matt's, Matt's our, now our resident mathematician. Resident. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The English time. National Opera season is, uh, I believe, it, it's they're doing five new productions as well as a handful of revivals. Their, their big points are coming from how many new productions they're doing in the, in the, ma- in the main part. They're doing uh, of Zalame, Porgy and Bess, mm. 
the Merry Widow, uh, as well as Noya's Flood and a couple other ones. Uh, and but what's really but what else is excellent about their season is how many women are in leadership positions, either directing or conducting. And that those those points just kind of add up. In addition to the fact that they're not doing a lot of repeat composers, they're not doing Traviata or Carmen. They're not doing any. Uh, they're not doing any Wagner. So there's just not a lot of deduction going <laughs> no, on there. No, either. Va- and Wagner is the big killer there, isn't he? So uh, I think I think the interesting thing I saw about this season is that they're doing two Britain operas. Well, not really operas. One of them is, uh, of course, the. War Requiem, uh, but the other one also Noise Flood. That th- th- these are not what you would expect to see if you're doing if you're doing Britain. You expect you know uh, what Britain? Uh, you expect uh, Turn of the uh, Peter screw, Grimes, yeah, or, uh, Turn of the Screw, Peter Billy Grimes, or Rape of Lucretia. Uh, no, Noise Flood in, in particular to me is interesting because you know it's it's a cast of kids, uh, generally speaking, um, and uh, I think that's. How, how did did you did you have any points for that or was that just kind of a straight up? Um, uh... Yeah, it's a it's a piece that doesn't necessarily get done at opera companies very much because it's more about the community aspect. It's it, it volunteers, or, or choirs, or at a church it would get done, and so I would be curious to see what they're going to do with it. Uh, but I would say of the two Britain performances of the year, it's the more standard one compared to the War Requiem. Yeah, which is which is not an opera at all. So that you some might say that's cheating, I suppose. Um, But uh, if you're if you're not familiar with the War Requiem, it's a. it's not your typical requiem, you know. Yeah, it's, well, it's, it's not the first time that somebody's tried to stage a requiem and put it in an opera house. I think right. actually, Calicto Bieto uh, staged the Britain World Requiem pretty recently, but we've seen other things like Saint Matthew Passion and whatnot, uh, Handel's Messiah, things that are supposed to be oratorio presentations get staged, and you know, it's not my ideal favorite thing. But uh, some of this music, I think, otherwise wouldn't get heard. I think the War Requiem is an amazing genius piece of music it really is and i think it's going to introduce a lot of people to the show matt i know we're always relying on you for information but can you tell us kind of how the war requiem is constructed as a piece yeah so the war requiem it interweaves the poetry of wilfred owen that he wrote about world war one and his experiences as a soldier with the latin uh mass for the dead and the latin mass is sung primarily by the soprano solo and the chorus and they're and they're accompanied by the full orchestra. And then there's also a chamber orchestra that has the baritone and tenor soloist, and they sing the poetry. And it interweaves and alternates back and forth into the last movement when everyone sings all together. And it, what, what's really interesting about some of the casting in this piece throughout the history is that typically it is a Russian soprano, a German baritone, and an English tenor. Oh, because, really? I be, didn't know that. Because it was the original premieres were Peter Pierce as the tenor, Dietrich Fischer-Dieskau as the baritone, and uh, it was supposed to be Galina Vishnevskaya as the soprano, but she couldn't get a visa to come do the premiere in Coventry Cathedral, so they had to replace her with Heather Harper. Who is amazing. <laughs> yeah, but and Vishnevskaya is on the recording, but uh, the that sort of, you know, the, the three ma- major European powers... That's, uh, um, I just wanted to say that like this piece uh, does require like huge, huge forces. Can we hear? Did you have my clip set up for this? I do, okay. I do. Yes, this is a clip from the War Requiem. Uh, any uh, original th- cast? This is Peter Pears and DJ Fischer Discal uh, from the Libra May section, I believe.
I really, really like the scale of the War Requiem because I feel like I almost get used to hearing Benjamin Britten as a uh, chamber opera composer, you know, and I really love it when he really has the resources to do something big like this. Yeah, it really has everything from the the turn of the screw scale all the way to the big Peter Grimes scale in terms of what Britain could do. <laughs> that, that's the sliding scale. That's the Britain scale as opposed to the Dotson exactly. scale. And it also has all the things that make Britain like such an iconic composer, like these this tenor role like that has like these, you know, very uh, characteristic um interval like like this the way he writes melodies is like so britain and there's plenty of that <laughs> and i don't know i'm not explaining it really beautifully but like you know we are more we can hear britain's melodies better now in the 21st century but oh know, absolutely back, back in this time like it probably was you know probably the most avant-garde thing that he did but everything else was super familiar to the audience like you have children's choir you have like the full adult choir you have like the russian soprano solist who's like singing very operatically then like the german baritone who sings like leader style you know mm. and so everything that that britain is known for like his songwriting his writing for children his writing for choruses, his writing for operatic sopranos, you know, war theme, like everything you want about Britain is packed into this one piece. You know? I, another interesting fact that uh, about the War Requiem, that it was a little, actually a little controversial, uh, maybe not its premiere, but a little bit beforehand, uh, certainly, uh, because Britain famously during the war itself was a conscientious subjector. He, uh, he escaped, I, I believe, to the United States to avoid um, fighting in the war. Uh, and there was some objection about that at the time. At, at before in the run up to the piece, sure, but it was actually a huge hit once it premiered. It exactly. was critically acclaimed, and I think that, that it's because the pacifism that's that his soul really comes through, mm-hmm. and you can hear it as a tribute to everyone's sacrifice without taking away from that, but also as a statement about how horrible this is. And the production next year at ENO to bring it all back is, uh, it, it's in res- in relation to the hundredth anniversary of the end of World War One. Oh yeah, uh, where the which which was the inspiration for all the poetry, and I believe that the staging is going to be ref, is going to be reflective of that as well. And uh, uh, so, as, as much as I would love to talk about the War Requiem because it is one of my favorite Britain pieces, uh, we probably should mention some of the less interesting things in the uh, impacting the Dodson scale here. They are doing La Boheme, which loses them 10 points off the bat because it's the same thing. They're doing uh, Merry Widow and, uh, you know, Magic Flute, a couple of, you know, kind of... Uh, you know, yeah, every, just... every company ever occasionally throws one together because you always have one in your back pocket. Uh, I think it's kind of uh, it's kind of interesting to have the the wide variety. I I think of something as big and somewhat ambitious as the War Requiem right next to the Merry Widow. Nothing against Franz Lehar. I, I I love the guy, but he's you know it, it's not quite the same thing. <laughs> well, it's not the same thing, but it does give you. I think Merry Widow. There's still beautiful singing. Uh, it's a good cast, and there's going to be comedy there. And I think that's you. You kind of have to have that. And I know that and waltzing and, and oh god and waltzing. <laughs> the other thing, um, one thing that I'm excited about um, is the tenor singing Rodolfo in Bohem. And I know we poo-poo on Bohem because everybody oh, does Bohem. I love Bohem. I love La Bohem. <laughs> like, and maybe it loses points on the Dodson scale, but my god, it's good music. Anyway, Jonathan Tettleman, um, an American tenor who is. I love his voice. I have, have. I don't know it. I cannot wait to. Hear yeah, it. I really enjoy his singing. Um, if you like him, then I like him. Oh. No, I think he's fantastic, and I think soon enough he's going to be on a lot, a lot of the stages of the world, um, and that's kind of exciting to see that he's getting to do this role um, with. English National Opera. Yeah, and the thing about the this uh, about when I am doing the scoring about these, what really stands out to me is you can do Bohem and lose and lose ten points, quote unquote, and still and still really come out on top if you're willing to take risks sure. in other what ways. They, what it, what was their score for Bohem on this? The Bohem they was was a net of negative five points because there is a female conductor and the revival director of the Jonathan Miller production is also. Is also a woman, so that helps rectify some of the points yeah. lost for being Bohem. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and the, it, 
the fact of the matter is not every bohem is going to be the same. And so some, there is still creative work to be done with these old mm-hmm. chestnuts. I don't think that anyone is saying that we need to throw them out. True. I, I think one of the things I've been noticing ever since we implemented the Dodson scale is that um, we have, particularly with European opera companies, um, you have these sort of... Uh, old war horses right next to some weird new stuff. And I feel like the inclination in the United States is kind of to devote your entire opera house to one or the other. You know what I mean? Well, we, we like this opera house overall because of what they're doing. I do, at least. And I've never been, but I, I like this because I love that they're doing Akhenaten <laughs> with Anthony Walter Oh, Stanzo. I love Akhenaten. Yeah. Oh, that's good I love stuff. that they're doing Porgy, I mean, Porgy and Bess, uh, Diodorinius and Porgy and Bess, but they're doing Diodorinius as the other half of the noise flood double bill and Dido is one of my favorite operas and perfect obviously for an English national you know own, uh, opera company this is a very English yeah. uh, and they do everything in English, English for those yeah. who don't know mm-hmm. uh, but we want to talk a little bit about uh, their new general director uh, Daniel Kramer Daniel Kramer go right. ahead Toby take it away uh, well, I just there's an article from the New York Times. I think it's it's really interesting to hear that there's an American who's here who has this crazy artistic vision. And you know, one of the quotes just talking about ending the season, he says it was important to close on a world premiere because opera is going to survive. If opera is going to survive, we should be going. We should be doing 50% new work. We can keep pillaging 400 years of white male opera in the canon, but we need stories about people now by people now. Um, and so this is a guy who's really trying to light a fire um, uh, uh, under. The people who are following this opera company, not necessarily within the walls of the company, um, because there's been such a huge upheaval. And the other thing that he's working with is he's got a little bit of a handcuffs um, around what he's able to do financially because the Arts Council of England, who provides uh, subsidies for opera companies, slashed his budget from 20, well, the subsidy that he received from 23.3 million or 17.2 million pounds uh, to 16.8 million dollars or 12.38 million pounds. That is a huge number to have taken away from you and then be expected to survive. Am yeah. I especially in a in a model that really is based on that kind of government support. You know, the, I mean if mm-hmm. you all, if you only programmed based on having grants from the government and you don't necessarily have the infrastructure or the skills to fundraise and do development the way American companies have had to for decades. Right. Yeah, and, I think it's uh well, obviously it's a real shame that he's that they're having those issues over there. And I, th- I feel like that is kind of a, obviously in, in the United States, this kind of problem is really old hat to us. Um, but sure, I, it is old hat to us, but what's not old hat to them is the fact that the Arts Council, basically this is a punishment essentially for them right. failing at the box office. And we don't deal with that in the United States. Uh, if, you know, Lyric Opera, their season next year, the Lyric Opera of Chicago, to me screams we need to generate revenue. We have to make money. Um, mm. And that's because there's no subsidy coming into them uh, to support their financial situation. Whereas in this particular situation, to have the people providing the subsidy say, because of your box office, because of these failings, we're going to take money away from you. That's a whole different uh, battle to be fighting. You can't go to your donors and ask them to make up the difference between what the government has been providing for your funding. And I think that's a, a really unique challenge. And it's also... Daniel Kramer's a Northwestern grad. Go Cats! Yeah, and we also <laughs> tend to talk about Europe and America as though there are th- those are the only two models, and not all European models mm-hmm. are the same. You're a, True. If this article points out that uh, the pre- one of the previous directors was not very popular with English National Opera because he wanted to do things in more of a German style, where uh, where I think there's even more power given to the art administrative and directorial staff in particular to really take risks and go outside of the box when, in terms of what they're putting on the stage. And the, Engli- the English taste don't necessarily reflect that and what the, and neither does their art co- arts council yeah i think it's a very uh it's certainly a, a specific problem to have there but i think this is also an encroaching problem uh over the past couple of years i feel like you, you see more people well i mean not not just in the music world but i, I think this is sort of a similar thing you know uh, attitude for bre- brexit you know where you're you're trying to reject all of these uh, European things, all of these uh, older, the, these these more traditional uh, uh, way, ways of funding things. This feels like a, a symptomatic of a larger problem there. And I, I don't want to get too political because that's not what this show is about. But I think it's this about is... about sports. <laughs> <laughs> First and foremost. First and foremost. That's why Oliver and I are here anyway. 
<laughs> but uh, but I do think that this that these kinds of political movements and uh, and pushes are something we have to be very conscious of in the arts world, particularly in uh, an art form like opera, which opera, which is so dependent on funding from uh, various sources. Um, and uh, not to uh, really uh, kind of shut the discussion down on my own point, but I think we have to go on to our. Uh, oh, wait, 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 wait! Oh, before you go on, just okay. Say, did you we can have did we give the word. final score, Matt? Oh yes, that's a good point. For this? I don't. Th- I don't think that we. I don't think that I said it. We're okay. we're calling the final score at a seventy-one point five. Ooh, seventy-one point five, which is very high. I forget the other uh, European what opera did, companies. But... What did we have for Washington National last week? It was in the eighties. I feel like. Yeah, well, I, I, I think it was, uh, I, I want to say 86. I don't know. Uh, well, uh, you can check last week's show. On the and last, last point, uh, back in 2000 and, oh boy, 16, I want to say, uh, we uh, interviewed Ian Bell, actually the composer of the world premiere Jack the Ripper. So if you want to oh. hear what Ian Bell sounds like on, on Opera Box Score, back when George and I were kids, we both had hair. Uh, I, I, was here, I was here too, and I had, oh, yeah. I had a little bit more hair. Oliver forgets that I've been here since the beginning of the show. <laughs> Oliver just thinks he waltz in his creative consultant, and I came along with him. No. Show one, Oliver. I've show been here. You're actually in show zero, one. too. I am in show The pilot. <laughs> the pilot. And here I am, just the new guy, uh, you yeah. know, just trying to, just doing my best, just doing my best. Yeah. All right, coming up next, countertenor John Holiday and soprano Dame Gwyneth Jones, but not in the same room and sadly not this room that's next only an opera box score and wnur fm evanston chicago live from chicago you're listening to opera box score more right after this Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news in the two-minute drill, plus our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendant Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. We are back with Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score, WNUR-FM, Evanston, Chicago. And uh, the first thing we're going to talk about right here is this New Yorker article, which you can find on our website, operaboxscore.com. And here's a quote on that article. Uh, The classical music world still skews white. John Holiday knows how important role models can be. This year, he won the Marian Anderson Award, named for the trailblazing black contralto who overcame the racial prejudice of mid-century America to become one of the most celebrated artists of her day. A quote from him, Before anyone hears me, they see me, an African-American male countertenor. Uh, now, this story is, uh, is, uh, is a pretty uh, interesting one, a little glimpse into uh, a sort of African-American uh, artist's uh, life and process, Um, and uh, I'm going to play a little clip here of him singing actually not a classical piece first. He'll be singing a little uh, um, uh, gospel tune for you. No, it's Fly Me to the Moon. I'm sorry. It's Fly Me to the Moon. It's jazzy. Uh, The New Yorker video does have him singing some gospel tunes, so we couldn't pull those. Everyone should go listen to it. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, now when you're listening to this, I I want you to kind of be uh, hearing what he does um, because we're listening to something of his uh, classical, classically inclined a little bit later. And uh, he makes a big emphasis in the article about how jazz, popular music, uh, rap, hip-hop, all influences Cardi how B. he... Cardi B specifically. Name uh, how he, uh, how he uh, creates his art in the more classical setting. And it's a, very interesting, uh, it's a very interesting take. So here he is singing, Fly Me to the Moon. Feel my heart song 
Now, that's a genre we're not quite used to on this show necessarily, but man... How does that, that, that is a very, I really, really like, it's not my favorite song in the world, but I really like his take on it. Well, so what I, what I hear there is somebody singing. Authent- <laughs> I hear authenticity, number right. one. No, and like you laugh, Weston, but like what I hear is just a singer. Uh, and I think, Absolutely. I think too often um, classical singers really pigeonhole themselves and, and don't allow for expression of their voice with just their voice. Um, and we work tirelessly on a technique that uh, provides us with the, uh, the ability to sing freely over an orchestra, um, unamplified. What I hear here is someone singing because they love to sing, and I thought that was gorgeous. You hear the taffy, you hear him stretch, and you hear like a bit of a... There's an edge to the sound. And in the article he says, and I love this, all the music that I've heard... All the music that I've sung shapes who I am. Not who I am as a musician, not how I sing, but it shapes who I am. And so I think you hear that in this recording. I, the, the only thing that I take issue with about that is the fact that I, I do think that plenty of times singers do that to themselves. But I think that the uh, opera yeah. world also does it to singers and the, the audiences and the critics. Mm. Uh, because what who the person who jumped out to me reading that article, who kind of has a parallel... Uh, not parallel, like an opposite reaction to this is Renee Fleming, who got her start a lot singing a lot of jazz clubs in Rochester, and she loves to talk about that. And you can definitely hear that in her singing in the way that she likes to. That's how she likes to sure. put herself into her roles, and she gets pilloried for it. People tell Ooh, her, "Okay, okay, okay, okay." I hear you. <laughs> Reverse those things though, because what John Holiday is singing here is an opera. Yeah. He's just singing. So we're Renee to sing Fly Me to the Moon and have like the yippity doodah flippy things that Renee does in opera. I feel like we would feel a lot different about it because it's a different kind of freedom. When you're singing opera, you got to sing opera. You couldn't go sing Ombra My Fu the way he just did. Fly yeah, the, Me to the Moon. The, but the what I the reason I bring that up is because there's uh there's a word that gets thrown around a lot in terms of being what it takes to make it as a singer and it's individuality. And I feel like it, it, what part of the difficulty about that is that people want individuals who they also can easily place in things. They want you to be special and they want you to stand out, but they also want to know exactly what to do with you. Right. Exactly. And that, that, that's something that not even just the music world, this is a big thing that you see in theater. Speaking from my own straight theater experience, that is a, a, it's it's very difficult to find that balance between um, being someone memorable and being exactly what exactly the drone being the director's the looking for exactly, and uh, certainly I think it's an interesting way of being individual by having these sorts of different uh, influences outside of the genre that you are supposed to be singing most of the time. Um, and, but it does bring out similarities and things that, that are, are there. I mean, you think of, uh, he, well, he's a countertenor, which means he has a, a big, uh, presumably a large uh, early Baroque rep, which is all about ornamentations, which is, you know, over these sort of walking bass lines, which is kind of like, a, which is very jazz-like in, in many many ways and there there are things you can do there to really express yourself while still staying saying within the quote-unquote opera mold um okay so let me stop you right there yeah um so the technique you need to sing baroque music it's really hard to actually add um you know for lack of a word like jazzy um tone quality or jazzy portamento or this type of stuff that renee fleming is sort of known for it's hard to do that in broke music. Sometimes the music is so fast, you're just lucky to be able to sing the notes, you know? That is true. <laughs> now, Renee Fleming's, you know, repertoire, I mean, especially like her French repertoire, like her Manon, or like when she sings Depuis le Jour, um, that stuff really lends itself to some of the bending of pitch she does and sort of the portamentos and stuff. She has tried to do it in Mozart, and with varying degrees of, su- of success, you know, not all conductors are, are game for that, you know, for all that stuff. But she's gotten away with it mostly in French repertoire and like in romantic repertoire like Puccini and whatnot. But uh, John Holiday, I don't think yet has the that much repertoire that he can really show what his personality is. Mm-hmm. What he can do now as an artist of, of his age and of his stature is just to do different types of music. He can sing gospel. He right. can sing jazz. Right. He can sing brogue music. 
Um, but what I think we're confusing here is that Renee Fleming actually allows her jazz upbringing to influence how she sings. Thank you. That's opera. kind of what I was saying to you, Matt. Like, I understood where you were coming from, but I was also saying, like, one genre, I, I don't know. It's interesting when you sing to sing, like John Holiday is singing here, he's singing just to share. Yeah, and I mean... that's what it feels like to me. He, I, you can't take Fly Me to the Moon and put it into your Baroque repertoire. I do understand what you're saying, but I also want to say that she's released more than one album of crossover music, and those have also been criticized. And what I sell... What I... What I think is really cool about this article is that it takes something that is not necessarily unique, but something that he is very outspoken about, something that he's very well-spoken about, but something that isn't necessarily always welcomed by the classical music community, and it puts it front and center, and I think that that's very courageous and I and I and it's something that I have a lot of respect for ab- about him as an artist mm-hmm. I think that I, I I think we at this point we should probably listen to uh, a little clip of him singing something a little more classical <laughs> singing um, crude Fourier uh, from I think Cersei by Handel but, con- but conducted by Plaza Domingo probably at the end of some opera like, competition or something like that so not exactly the greatest conductor <laughs> for music well let's take a listen see how it sounds That is a bit of a range uh, from Fly Me to the Moon. I, I will yes. say that it's, it's a little farther away. <laughs> um, but I think it is, I think once he does become more established, I think that connection will become a little more palpable than perhaps it is right now. Uh, would you agree with that, Oliver? Um, what do you mean more palpable? Like uh, more, more, more obvious, like a... D- d- finding those connections between yeah, the Baroque I, rep yeah, and the not, Maybe not in an, uh, like a bravura aria from Handel, but yeah. Yeah, if he's doing other repertoire. I mean, he was part of Opera Philadelphia season. I think they did some, we talked about it, I'm sure, or a prototype, where they did some African-American social justice thing earlier this year. I remember his name coming up. I can't remember exactly what the piece was, but it was written in English, and it was written uh, with the African-American singers in mind. So I could see you know, that influence coming in. And so a piece like that, that's written specifically for him. I can't think of the name of the piece. Yeah. Like front of the O seventeen. We yeah. shall not be, yeah, we shall be, we shall stand or something, something about we shall, oh, we're <laughs> yeah. we shall do. Somebody's going to email us about yeah. this and be like, you guys didn't remember O seventeen. <laughs> Tweet at and Oliver they, specifically for not knowing that. Uh, no, but I mean like if we hear him sing, I mean right now, just to conflate all these things right now, there's this big movement to do like uh Purcell, with more jazzy and Monteverdi with more like mm-hmm, jazzy mm-hmm, influence. Mm-hmm. So if he goes down that route, but that's also like a subgenre, like a niche. I'm talking about like core repertoire. What does John Holiday sound like singing? Gotcha. Right. And I don't think, I mean, this article wasn't just about that. It was about his identity as an artist yeah. and what's influenced. And that but was, I think, the cool part about. It's tricky to be a black countertenor. It's tricky to be a black male singer in the first place in true, opera. True, true. But Even to be a countertenor is doubly difficult. All right. You're listening to WNUR, Evanston, Chicago. uh, And this is Opera Box Score. And, uh, oh, oh, what is is this? We're getting a transmission in from Germany. There seems to be trouble brewing on the horizon. Let's see what that's about.
That was Dame Gwyneth Jones, who is in the news this week. Um, and uh, I'm going to, uh, obviously the articles will be on our website, but here's a quote. Dame Gwyneth Jones has spoken out for the first time about the long-running feud which has riven the Wagner Society, of which she has been president for nearly three decades. In the latest skirmish revealed last week by the Sunday Telegraph, the society found itself at odds over a decision to cancel a sought-after public masterclass to have been held by the award-winning soprano. Now, this is a good old-fashioned Wagner, Wagnerian, Wagnerites, just, just... kind of free-for-all of pettiness, and I love it. Uh, (laughs) Any comments from any of you on this story in particular? It it does seem like a lot of things that maybe the Wagner Society wishes were not being aired in the public court of opinion. Okay, so here's what happened. Um, uh, Gwyneth Jones has this annual um, master class every year with the Wagner Society, and this is the English Wagner Society, uh, in case you're interested. Uh, And uh, last year, that uh, that uh, that masterclass went over budget, um, and apparently that was enough for the uh, society to cancel it this year, which ha- Mrs. <laughs> Ms. Jones is not very pleased with. Uh, and then Dame uh, Gwyneth actually Dame would, Gwyneth. Be her, oh, yes, would be her title. Right. I, I apologize, <laughs> um, but it is it is kind of. Uh, escalated into uh, some mean things being said on all sides. Uh, Jones is... Uh, is uh, Actually, can we get her name right? Oh, 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 1983 oh, Grammy winner. 1983 <laughs> Grammy winner. Dame Gwyneth Jones. <laughs> she... She she is not pleased by this. She has called out the society for... Because, I mean, a master class is not really expensive. And if you lose money... I mean, it's a, it's a master class. There there How are do many you make things. money doing a master class. I mean, like it's it's, it's, it's a pretty fixed it, cost. It sounds like, you're like it's the artist, you're paying the piano. <laughs> It it, it kind of does. Uh, there's there's some uh, there's some quotes running around. Where we're calling her a dictator in uh, from the society. You know, uh, just uh, it seems to be a very personal thing. Uh, and, and granted, budgets are budgets, but this that doesn't seem to be the whole story but here. Talking about budgets, it it it's very rare that you can recoup a fixed cost by canceling something that's already been scheduled. In my experience, oh, yeah, that's a good point. Too. And so it's weird. It, it seems more to be about the public state than that because if you're if you've already invested a bunch of if you've already invested the money in that that's gone whether you do it or not yeah would... it's it, it, it's just kind of a mess it feels kind of petty it feels kind of um just, <laughs> just just you know what i think is funny about reading this article and i'm sorry i don't take this very seriously because it's a canceled ma- it's people who don't like each other this happens all the time <laughs> absolutely, like, absolutely. In the arts never i mean to me this is not a big deal but this article <laughs> this article from the telegraph it's as if they talked to all the board members and they talked to the dame. <laughs> and those people didn't talk to each other. And it's no. kind of funny. I think it's, this is how they are talking to each other. <laughs> this reporter. It's, 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 They're actually going to listen to Opera Box Court to find out what they said. <laughs> They're sitting on opposite ends of the long oak wooden table in the Wagner also, Society headquarters. Also, the funny thing is they say they're going to cancel it because it lost money. <laughs> <laughs> it less it lost barely over a thousand pounds, which is like nothing. <laughs> so it was pretty petty. And I think her quote here, I'm sorry, I'm just giggling. Uh, she said, "This is not reflected in the minutes." Blah, 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 blah. I'm at a loss to understand why certain committee members would be seeking to rewrite history in this particular way. <laughs> <laughs> I, it seems like these stakes uh, are pretty high for only about five people. I kind of in this, this is story. this is a you know, very the stakes are high for thing. the singers who don't get to now That's a participate good in the masterclass. Uh, so I, what do you do for I them? Love it. I, it, it. It's just it's just a, a complete mess. But you know, the, I want Dame Gwyneth Jones to be played by Dame Maggie Smith in the. They were in the movie together. Yeah, they were in the movie. Oh, they, uh, they were in a quartet, quartet together. Yeah, uh, that was after she won her Grammy in 1983, <laughs> and after she was became Dame Gwyneth Jones. Dame. When did she become Dame? Do we know? That's a good question. Uh, who knows? Tweet at us. We'll, Let us know. We'll Called Dustin Hoffman. She's she's definitely. Uh, I feel like sort of a very much the old school diva in a in a environment where those are kind of no longer fully existent. Well, uh, and so the other thing is, 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 is I hate to say this, if we're going to say she's maybe on the tail end of her career. Oh, she's, oh, she, well, she's, she's been retired from singing for a long time. Tail end of her... Uh, you mean in her golden years? Uh, yes. Yeah, she's 81, you're saying. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, so the other part of that is, is it possible that they wanted to get rid of the master class because maybe it wasn't 
an effective use of time. Mm. Meaning, master classes in general, who do they really benefit? Do they benefit the singers? Do they benefit the audience? Well, you do they benefit the person giving the master class by providing them with more FaceTime and notoriety? Well, I, I'm in the room with three singers right now who have been to many master classes. Do you got any good juicy stories for me on how those I, work? I mean, I'd say on the whole, the third option is what master classes tend to be about. <laughs> right. They're about the master clinician more than they're about the audience, more than they're about any of the singers. 100%. And I've been to more than one masterclass where the master clinician is basically just spewing nonsense at the audience and talking to hear their own voice. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and so in this particular case, if there are board members who are at odds with her, I mean, of course, like that's what you do. You cancel the masterclass. You give her less opportunity to be herself. And, I mean, that's, that's a hell of a way to fight back. Uh, <laughs> just rein in the dame. <laughs> I've been to some fun masterclasses, though. Tell us a story. Well, there's there's one that comes to mind in particular. I was at a master class once where a very well-known woman, I'm not even going to say what voice type because it just doesn't matter, (laughs) but she was not of um, the right mind, I believe, to come give a master class at 10.30, 11.30 in the morning. She spilled a latte and tried to scoop it up with her hands back (laughs) into the cup. Uh, She didn't remember... I'm pretty sure she think she thought a tenor was singing Je veux vivre. I don't even <laughs> I don't know, Matt. You there was there. a question about uh what, what state we were in at one point. It was it was kinda all a blur for for <laughs> m- many of the parties involved. She but... said she said, What's next? <laughs> Someone said another one. Another what? Another singer. <laughs> <laughs> one singer sang and she looked at the poor guy and she just was like, That's good. That was it. Run along now. <laughs> well, I'll, tell, I'll tell a story and I'll name names. Uh, oh, okay. Um, so right, I, went, I went to a master class uh, given by Marilyn Horn, who's one of my yeah. like, heroes okay. in life. Oh, yeah. yeah, Marilyn Horn master class. Um, yeah. yeah, and this was uh, at a Midwestern university, not Northwestern, but here in the Midwest, that has uh, a music program. <laughs> and okay. uh, the singer who was presented uh, was a young mezzo-soprano who offered uh, Santuzza's Aria Voi Lo Sapete mm-hmm. from Cavalier Rusticana. Uh, Ms. Ms. Horn allowed her to sing the aria, and when she was finished, she says she's told her, "I don't. If your teacher's in the room right now, this young lady should not be singing this aria. What else do you have?" That's and, awesome. Yeah, and um, I think the singer has suggested another piece. Like she's nope, not that either. You know, Ooh. what do you have that's you know that you can sing right now? You know, yes. and made made her work on something that she was learning like a handle or like Lasha Kyopiang or something like that and made this girl use up her time you know just woodshedding an aria <laughs> it was so embarrassing but I loved who it who was it know? embarrassing for? it was embarrassing for the teacher yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. and I think yeah. that was the point yeah. there yeah oh. was Marilyn Horn right? Absolutely. So yeah. hell Marilyn yeah. Horn is that was always a great right. master class. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Not all that. Well, this this won't be happening uh, for this season for uh, Dame Gwyneth Jones, Grammy winner Dame Gwyneth Jones. You are listening to WNUR FM Evanston, Chicago. Uh, coming up next, Jesse Norman wins big. That is next. Keep it locked on WNUR. <laughs> Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the bear hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. This just in, the two-minute drill. 
American soprano Jesse Norman was awarded the Royal Philharmonic Society's highest honor at a ceremony in London last night. In a filmed acceptance video, she said, quote, Look at the world as we find it today. Would we find our planet inhabitable without the richness and sounds in a Mozart sonata, the melodies of a Brahms symphony that simply carries us through the day, the harmony of a Schubert song, the music of Elgar? All this sustains us. She went on to emphasize the importance of music edu- education, saying, quote, Music education is an essential part of the nourishment that we should offer our children. Conforming our report on last week's show, performances by former Metropolitan Opera music director James Levine have indeed been withdrawn from the company's Sirius XM satellite and online radio channel. The Met said Levine's performances, quote, will be introduced to the programming at an appropriate time. At the Curtis Institute of Music, a seismic shift is coming to the school's storied opera and vocal studies department. Eric Owens and Danielle Orlando will assume co-equal roles as head of opera starting the 2019-2020 season, the school announced last week. William Florescu, the general director of the Florentine Opera Company in Milwaukee since 2005, abruptly resigned his post this week, only two years after the company extended his current contract through 2024 and a few days before his new production of Mozart's The Magic Flute opens Friday. On the disabled list, the Royal Opera House has announced Christina Opolais' replacement as Elsa in the next month's production of Wagner's Lohengrin, the Irish, sup- Irish sup- soprano Jennifer Davis. Until last week, Davis was a member of the ROH Jet Parker training program. Opolais tweeted, quote, Following a routine abdominal medical procedure, I must take a break for a few weeks to ensure a full recovery. And on this day, May 14th, it was the premiere of Gustav Holst's opera, The Perfect Fool, at the Royal Opera House in Covent Garden in 1923. And that was your two-minute drill. Right. But it's like... Oh, your guys are talking behind my back, aren't you? Can you hear us? Yeah, we can hear you We're now. over here brainstorming things for the show. <laughs> Thank you for your, your uh, brainstorming for the show, which is currently in progress, I might add. Um, but uh, I think... Th- okay. What? <laughs> We're on the air? <laughs> Surprise. Um, I think the big story for the two-minute drill, at least for me, is the confirmation of the Levine, uh, the removal of Levine's recordings from the Metropolitan Opera Sirius XM station, which we did talk about uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, to, to be fair, removal's a bit of a strong word. They they are currently not playing on the Met, but they they leave the door open to put them back on and in that, the future. That is kind of the weird thing about this to me. Yeah, that's uh, it. When you're not paying attention, we'll slip it back in. Yeah. The, at an appropriate time. Yeah, it, it, is, it is really weird. The appropriate time clause. And, and now we did talk a little bit about this because um, James Levine, despite the things he's done, has been the sort of the backbone of the Met for the past several decades, 40 years, uh, you know, and to eliminate his operas uh, from the streaming service does seem to be tantamount to removing the the best of, you know. Uh, in, in part because he insisted on absolutely. the best I mean, cast. Every, the every, best, the best the, cast. The prime the the prime performances of every season. It'd be really cool if the Met released a list of what they're of what they're going to temporarily not play it, to see just how. I mean, it's probably pretty exhaustive. I, it, it's it and, would all the big hits, all the ones everyone still talks about. And, you and know? even though they're not playing on the radio right now, they are still available for streaming for on streaming the, on Met on Demand. Oh, that so is interesting. To me, they are they're they're trying to thread a needle between the people who are willing to forgive. And the people who don't want anything to do with him. And I feel like they might make both camps angry with this. Yeah. Yeah. It it really does feel like that statement will bring it back when it feels appropriate. feels almost um, condescending is not quite the right word. But it it, it almost feels like a Freudian slip, you know? Like, uh, we don't really, we really want to keep these on. But, you know, people don't want it now. So we're just going to take them off for now. And it does not feel like they're taking a strong stand. It feels very much... Uh, it feels like it could just be about the fact that there's litigation at all. Well, that's yeah. that's what I was going to say. It, I, to leave it open-ended probably is because there hasn't been legal action taken to say definitively, this is what happened. These are the actions we're going to take because of that. And I think 
innocent until proven guilty, I guess. But I, it's one of those deals. In a court of law, that doesn't mean that well, you have the right well, to the royalties. Of, not, not in the court of public opinion, though. I mean, like he's already been removed, and there's been this outcry. And it's interesting. You talk about the Me Too movement. We should talk about Florentine Opera as well. <laughs> but I, I think about, the, you know, is that... Um, well, I don't know. That's a whole different discussion. That's not about opera. Well, but like, when does it become okay? When, if ever, would it be okay for someone who's been accused of these things? Does forgiveness, is that at all part of what happens? Well, we listen in, to in, Schwarzkopf. We listen to Wagner, you know. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not, I'm sure everybody just to was be really, really, really clear, I'm not advocating that it's time to already forgive and forget people who've been accused and and whose guilt has been proven. Just want to put that out there but in my in my opinion the point of the movement is not to make that decision for other people correct it's to make everyone aware that this has been happening the whole time correct. and now we are aware and now there change are has plenty be, of people who are probably made. never going to listen to a levine recording ever again and i bet there are some people who never stopped listening to and them. there are plenty yeah i agree yeah, yeah it's, it's it's a difficult subject philosophically and i think um, I, I, I don't know what the right course of action is. I just know that this statement doesn't quite feel like they nailed it. <laughs> I don't think they've nailed the situation at all. No. no. In any way, shape, or form. But Go, going dating back multiple, to 1970s. Mm. <laughs> yeah, dating back multiple decades. Yeah. The Met has mishandled this. Yeah, moving on from the Met, what's an. Oh, <laughs> there goes any chance I ever have of performing there. <laughs> Right, that was it. Oh, that was it. That was the one. That was the one that pushed you over the edge, right over the edge. Career suicide. Oh well. Uh, oh well. <laughs> we'll 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 censor your comments uh, in the podcast. I'm sure. We'll just alter your voice. <laughs> just give me a bunch of beeps. Oh boy. All right, what what else popped out to people? Uh, uh, um, Tobias, you were you were whispering something under your breath about uh, about uh, the Florentine Opera Company. What's uh, what's your take on that? I, I I'm gonna say that it does seem like there are Matt more speaking for me there are more details mm. coming on that story without getting into too much speculation it's it's not over yet right there are rumors circulating the circulating the circumstances of his abrupt departure that um are just rumors at this point they're and just we don't rumors want to... we're not going to talk about them yeah. but he did just get a contract extension and through 2024 so it is uh there seems to be some Eyebrows indication that there, yeah, there, there are other. There seem to be other factors at play, which I, we will definitely cover if and when those become uh, more public, uh, more publicly known uh, to us, and um, with some more better sources backing them up. Um, and the more happy news, though, Jesse Norman got her one, and I'm sure it's just a, a cavalcade of awards. <laughs> all yeah. of her, uh, she has all the awards. She doesn't. Nobody. She really does not need another award. She doesn't. <laughs> we all know how amazing she is. But it to me, it's just nice to have an excuse to like listen to her. <laughs> so if you don't mind, yeah. do we have two minutes to spare? Yeah, we got two minutes. Okay. Let, let, let's. This give is a listen. from the Quartz Mazur uh, recording of Ariadne of Noxus. This is the first aria in the opera proper. Ein schönes war.
Well, I don't know about you, but I kind of want to give her an award too. There's, I, I mean, <laughs> that recording is so amazing. If you don't haven't listened to the whole Such thing, it has Edita Gubarova as Zerbinetta, and that's all I care about. Um, it's so, <laughs> so, so good. But I mean, this is an example of how amazing her voice is, how she was risky in her singing, how sometimes the technique was perfect for the role. Her technique is effed. I mean, like, this is a woman who, I don't know what she's doing sometimes. Like, it's crazy. She always creates so much space, and sometimes the, you know, the pronunciation becomes very distorted because she has so much space. But then there are things where she sings like this where you need that much space and the breath mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. even and the tone is like gleaming and like she can do soft, she can do loud. It's a ringing in my ear still. I mean, it's such an amazing, amazing sound. And yeah, Ariadne is like the perfect role for her. Yeah, this this is certainly not her first award, but I imagine it's not her last. You know, maybe one day we'll be big enough to give out awards ourselves. We can have the, the Opera Box, Box Score awards. awards. Yeah, I think we're. You know what? I'm going to so. do it right now since I'm co since I'm taking over from George. George, I am in the pilot seat now, and I am conferring on Jesse Norman our inaugural uh, lifetime achievement award. Oh. In the she won a boxy. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I think on that note, we need no, to... No, don't you have one more thing? <laughs> but if you think about it, the, the this article points out that this is the in honor of the 50th anniversary of her first professional performance. And That's think about insane. how much the world has changed over the course of Jesse Norman's Absolutely. career. Absolutely. And, and how much of it... how. Uh, you know how much is po possible now uh, how much she's seen and how mu how far we still have to go and i admire her for speaking out yeah absolutely congratulations to... jesse norman on your new boxy boxy and your other award whatever that one is who cares <laughs> uh we're gonna go into get uh, good calls and bad calls in here good call the box bad call <laughs> on opera box score all right, I have a I have a call for us. This is uh, from George. This is listener feedback from Woody in D.C. who writes, "Quote: I was excited to hear your Dodson scale scoring of next year's WNO season, but my high schooler listened and my high schooler listened in too. I think next season is a great mix of chestnuts and newer stuff. But I think you gave us a few points too many. I don't think the family-friendly opera, The Lion, The Unicorn, and Me, is a premiere. WNO did it a few years ago." Uh, uh, and that is absolutely correct. Uh, thanks for calling us on that. We appreciate you listening and giving feedback. And uh, we would encourage anyone else to do, give us feedback as well uh, on our podcast, uh, on iTunes or anywhere. Um, and thanks for listening. Anyone else got a good call? Oliver? Uh, Woody is right. They did that in 2013. Yeah. And I realized that right as we finished the show last week. And I'm sorry. So that's a bad call. This is Toby. Woody, I hope <laughs> you still listen to our show. Um, two quick things. Uh, if you're in the Chicagoland area, uh, on Sunday, uh, the Collaborative Arts Institute of Chicago is presenting their uh, Spring Leader Lounge. Leader Lounge. Uh, <laughs> with uh, San Francisco and Houston Grand Opera uh, star soprano Melody Moore uh, with pianist Shannon McGinnis. And here at Northwestern University, which hosts uh, Opera Box Score at WNUR Radio, uh, they are putting on Handel's Theodora, uh, which is a beautiful oratorio, but it's being staged. And uh, the new stage director here at uh, Northwestern University, what's his name again? Joachim Schomburger. Anyway, it's a great piece uh, that's running Thursday through Sunday. Uh, support, support the kids. Support Handel. Support the kids. Yeah. <laughs> Any other good calls? No? No? Not a one? Not no. a one? All right, no. in that Sports. case, I'm calling it. I'm calling it. Go LeBron. That is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general manager at WNUR is Nick Anderson. Our announcer is Norm Woodell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. And leave a review when you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. The executive producer is George Cedarquist. For Tobias Wright and Matt Cummings, I'm Weston Williams asking you to continue the conversation about opera and see if you can do it in a way that gets 106 million views on YouTube like uh, Childish Gambino did earlier this week. We're back on Monday, May 21st at 9 p.m. Central with more interviews, opera news, and hot takes, and a brand new segment. Join us then. This is WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's sound experiment.